You are tuned in to the Now Next podcast, exploring your meaningful now and your meaningful next. This summer, we have some very special episodes for our summer series. We bring to you today a conversation led by one of our co-hosts, Drew, regarding the Deconstructionist Playbook. Information regarding ordering the Deconstructionist Playbook, as well as other Our Bible app content will be linked in the description below. And without further ado, the conversation. Thank you. I am so excited to be with Crystal and Laura, and we're going to be talking about the Deconstructionist Playbook. Uh, But I would love, as we get started, for you all to introduce yourselves a little bit. I'll go first. My name is Crystal Cheatham, and I'm the creator of our Bible app. I am also the insane person behind the Deconstructionist Playbook. My pronouns are she and her. I'm happy (laughs) to be here with (laughs) y'all. I am nowhere near as cool as Crystal. My name is Laura Gruen. My pronouns are she, her, and they, them. And I am a Lutheran pastor. Um, I have not created any apps, but I am super excited because I get one essay in this amazing book. Um, I like to talk online. I am very mouthy on Twitter and Facebook about things like sexual ethics in the church, anti-racism in the church, um, that sort of stuff from a queer perspective and um, from a really deeply grounded Lutheran perspective. So this is super exciting. There are so many people that I pastor who are so alienated by so much of church and like, they're so not everyone. There's lots of people alienated by church who are like 0% interested. Right. But there are so many people alienated by church who want spiritual community and want Christian community so much. And like, that is my deepest passion as a pastor. We're here to talk about the Deconstructionist Playbook and how that came to be and where we're at in the process right now. So Crystal, can you tell us how this was born? I am really just so proud of the content that lives on our Bible app. There was a part of me that just felt like It's not enough for it to survive on an app because there are so many folks who need this information, need this resource, need this like community who will never look to an app for, you know, that kind of spiritual support. And I'm just thinking about people in my own life, like my mom, she loves our Bible app, but she's never read anything on the app. And she is the number one person excited about this anthology. And so I was just like, let's, let's figure out what voices that we can actually pull together And um, I found it really hard to stop. And so before we knew it, we had 50 and then we had 60 authors. And then we were like, okay, so which, which pieces should we actually use? Because everybody's written something that is just so dynamite. I mean, incredible, incredible, incredible voices. Reached out to both of you and um, tricked you into saying yes. And then, you know, the, the Kickstarter was a no brainer, you know, like how are we actually going to fund the printing and distribution of this book? Um, how can our Bible app continue to um, print books and actually become a publisher? And so this this Kickstarter was a way for us to secure funding for that, make sure we pay our authors and actually print this book and distribute it. I mean, I just have to give a shout out to all of the authors who um, really were like, oh yeah, we're going to tell everybody about it. And then actually went out there and told everyone about it. Laura, I know you do a good bit of work with people, as you said, who are on the outsides. Like, what is it about our Bible app that has been for you the kind of encouragement and the kind of tool and ministry that you think is is meeting a need that we don't often see met other ways? That's an excellent question. 
there's so many times that people come to me and they want to do daily Bible reading or they want to do daily prayer and they want to do um, researching their faith and studying more. And I have books to some extent that I give them, but when I've got folks that have been hurt by church, I don't want to recommend resources without reading them first. And let's just say it's pretty exhausting. I am not, in fact, a full-time librarian. I see your reaction, like reading every book, reading every app, reading every devotional. There's a whole lot of devotionals that I am just not going to put in people's hands without reading first. Because it's going to have like ableist language. Oh my goodness, the ableist language in the church, right? Like you're talking about. It's going to be subtly racist and classist. And it's going to have church respectability culture all in it. So the Our Bible app is actually the only devotional material that I recommend without having read everything. I love to read it myself. I learn. There's perspectives that are entirely different than mine. There are so many authors of Our Bible app in, in the Deconstructions playbook who have spoken God's word to me, who have showed me places where I needed to learn and grow um, and have encouraged me and have let me see Bible passages in entirely new ways. I love it. I love to read it. I love to follow these people on social media, um, but I, I don't read everything on it because there is a lot of content. So it's one of the very few that I trust to recommend to people of like, here, just about anything on this, read what you like, read whatever you love, explore this. Here's this amazing thing. It's really so good to hear you say, Laura, mostly because that was one of the hardest things for uh, my team and I to figure out when we first launched this was like, how are we going to give people the gospel minus all the stuff that we've just been arguing about for, for too long. Somewhere during our collective like deconstruction as, as a wider church, we just got stuck in the argument phase, but we're still developing. Figuring out how to actually do that and put that together was tough and then maintaining it. And I just, I love hearing you say that because it makes me feel like we did it. We did a good job. I mean, God love our denominational publishing houses and the other Christian publishing houses out there. They're a little behind the curve of where some of us are and where some of the young folks are and where some of the people have been alienated. But like, whoa, why is devotional material behind even the other books? But so often it is. Yeah. And that's the baffling thing is our Bible, the Deconstructionist Playbook, they are not the Bible, but they also map a lot of the diversity of voices and the different perspectives that bring together the scriptures that are a part of our faith. And so that that sense that this is really a new generation's voice, a new perspective on what it is that God's word is saying and speaking into new and abundant life today, that's so important because I do a lot of work at the center of vocation. And I mean, I don't know if y'all are surprised by this, but there's a lot of straight white dudes that write about vocation. And so, so like on one hand, the last thing that we need is one more doing that. Um, but what I have taken joy in is bringing interfaith voices, bringing BIPOC voices, bringing LGBTQ voices in the construction of identity and call and vocation and how that story, how their story is so much a needed story for our lives today, because we, we ignore these leaders when we don't have their voices as a consistent part of our faith. And so then in that realm of vocation, we just get more of the same rather than saying, but what else has got up to? What, what is that new thing that God is doing? And I, I think the Deconstructionist Playbook is one of the new things that God is doing. Amen. Um, we do a lot of work also to make sure that we are representing a, a diversity of voices. Um, it is like it's built into our publishing policy 
and you know just making sure that our this perspective isn't isn't uh, a single perspective of of who God is and how to enact Christianity in the world. And I just want to speak to you know your point of of diversity a bit more because we don't approach seeking out. Uh, authors believing that everybody is on the same path. I have constantly said, I just don't believe in backsliding. I just think that you're figuring it out. It's it's less of a ladder with rungs that you are climbing towards righteousness or like <laughs> the end goal, but more of like a river that you're wading into. And sometimes it's really shallow and sometimes it's really deep, but you're moving forward, you know? Um, and we want to give everybody credit where credit's due, that you are as a human being, you are doing your best to understand how to be a good person. I think the majority of us are just figuring out how to be uh, a better human. And none of us does that without engaging with uh, spirituality, whether you believe in it or not, we are each spiritual beings. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled that y'all see that in the app. And I'm thrilled to be able to put this into the deconstructionist playbook as best we could. And um, yeah, we cover every, we, we, we go from deconstruction to reconstruction and then liberation theology. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, folks get really curious about the liberation part. Um, and that I think is, is it's, it's, a, it's more about like the civic duty of being a good Christian. Mm-hmm. And being a good Christian doesn't mean like praying for the sinner, you know? <laughs> Being a good Christian doesn't mean like minding your P's and Q's and, and, you know, you know, being the best, being a good Christian to me means like sometimes leaving the pews and going to the protest, you know, being a good Christian means like caring about what capitalism is doing to our world, you know, um, understanding why black lives actually do matter. Um, you know, all of these, all of these uh, social justice issues are, are things that, we as Christians, we should actually care about climate change, blah, blah, blah. I could just keep going on and on and on. Um, but I'm really excited about this book. I'm really excited about the outline. And if whoever's listening, if you haven't heard about this, and I'll be surprised if you haven't because we've just been everywhere, um, you can actually just go to ourbibleapp.com. And on our front page, we have a link there on a picture. You can go straight to the Kickstarter um, and look at the outline for yourself and kind of see um, what's going on there? Because I know that you, Laura, and you, Drew, you've, you've both written about vastly different things, right? But you're both um, represented in this book. Laura, what did you write about? What, what are your, uh, what's your selection here in the book? Uh, so I have a piece in there called Even for the Sex Worker. Um, I wrote, I like to write about sexual ethics. And um, I love, Crystal, what you said about there's deconstruction and there's reconstruction and there's liberation because there were so many years where we were only doing deconstruction around sexual ethics, like the things that you've been taught, they're restricting, they're wrong, you don't have to listen to them, you've misunderstood. And we weren't doing like, here's a life-giving sex ethic. And so I love to do that work. Like what would a good and a holy and a life-giving sexual ethic look like? It's not anything goes. I don't believe for a second that it's anything goes, but there's something that will give us all life. Um, And so I have a particular passion for looking at the Bible verses that have been used against us, but finding some core of truth that I love deeply in them that will inform what I believe going forward and how I live going forward and how I teach going forward. So I took the Paul passage about not 
don't you know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? So why would you join it with a sex worker? Um, which has been used against sex workers all the time, right? Is used as a text of terror for sex workers and just for anyone who's sexual and said, okay, so Paul doesn't know what he's talking about here in terms of sex work. Um, I don't think Paul knows what he's talking about in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of sexual orientation. He's maybe he knew what worked in his context. I don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical of that, but he sure doesn't know what works in our context. Um, but Paul does have some really deep theological truths. I think that when he applies them, they get applied, or, or when we apply the way he tries to apply them, it, it, bad things happen. But what happens if we take him seriously as being someone to whom it is revealed that the Holy Spirit resides in everybody and that your body is a temple of the Spirit? And then what does that mean both for our own empowerment? Um, and our own self-knowledge and for the ways that we've harmed other people. What are the ways that I did not treat someone else's body like a temple of the Holy Spirit? And um, what are the ways in which we together have not been treating black and brown bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit? What are the ways that we've not been treating trans bodies and disabled bodies and all of like, whoa, once you start thinking that um, and then saying, oh, Oh, I'm convicted. What if I believe a sex worker? What if I believe that a black trans woman walk in the streets of Houston, which is where I lived when I wrote that? What happens if I believe that her body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? How does that change the way I interact with other humans? And how does that change the way I interact with my body and with my partner's body and and, and everyone really, because that's much deeper than just sex, right? That's the way that we treat each other's bodies. So yeah, that's, what about you? I, I'm embarrassed to confess, but since you, you just asked, I don't know what you wrote about, Drew. One, that's totally fine. And two, before I say that, or talk about that, I just want to say, I think it's one, beautiful. And thank you for writing that. And two, one of the things that I don't think people, when they read a title, like even for the sex worker, they're like, oh God, this is just another liberal, blah, blah. But how incredible that we're taking the Bible so seriously that we're asking, what if we actually believed the Bible? Like, what if we really took this to be true in a way that transformed even the way that we view the Bible itself? For anyone that thinks that this isn't a serious engagement with scripture, like just maybe, maybe pick up a copy and read it before you make your conclusion <laughs> that it's not a serious engagement with scripture. Really, really into the Bible. <laughs> oh my gosh. We are already getting um, uh, the critics rolling out there. Um, with that RNS uh, article that came out, yeah. um, the comments at the bottom, it was just, it was a lot. Deconstruction, to both of your points, um, sounds like you are taking things out and throwing them away. And in a sense, you, you are, but the actual goal is to go deeper, is to get more literal with the way that the text actually affects your, your daily life. And it is not a shying away from um, the truth, but finding a fuller way of embracing it, one that actually accounts for a God who can be uh, a spirit in every single one of us. I mean, yeah. Right. There's a parable that Jesus tells about the kingdom of heaven being like a householder going into her treasure store and pulling out treasures old and new. And I think about that work, like sorting through the treasures that we've inherited, and there's new treasures, and there's like 
that I'm getting from colleagues and from other people writing here. And there's old treasures and sometimes they need some sorting and some dusting. And sometimes we discover old, beautiful things. And sometimes we're like, oh, that piece of leather didn't stand the test of time. Right. <laughs> but like Jesus talks about this process of doing that. Thinking about that other scriptural imagery of like turning swords into plowshares, right? Like it doesn't mean that the thing that we are tearing down doesn't become useful again, right? That we are deconstructing it, but we're doing it with purpose. That it's going to be fruitful in another way, just maybe not fruitful in the way that it was used before, maybe not shaped the way that it was used before, but there is still some kind, again, of God's spirit being active and beautifully productive in that. For me, to answer your question, I wrote on meeting Jesus in interfaith relationships. So I do a lot of work on campus with students of various faith and non-faith backgrounds. And so I wrote a seven-day, not all seven are going to be in there, but my original uh, devotional was on seven different ways that I've encountered God, particularly through my interfaith partners. And so um, one of the ones that's in the Deconstructionist playbook is how I met God in conversations with my atheist friends and how, in fact, the questions that they pose are still questions that are faithful, even if they don't come from a place of faith, that they are questions that are fruitful, even if they don't bear fruit in the same way in their lives that they bear fruit in my life. And so those are the kinds of things that I really am excited about. I was texting earlier today with one of my students who is, uh, grew up in a household that practices Jane Dharma and that kind of life where it's not a daily, oh, we're always talking about religion, but we were talking in particular about how their professors didn't understand that in the middle of a pandemic right now, students are overwhelmed. And so they were looking for in, you know, a pastor at a Christian college, someone who would just listen and be a part of their lives. And so I wrote in different ways about how I have found my faith strengthened by people of other faiths. And that's been something that I continually try to share with folks because like the RNS article, you know, we constantly get people who say, you know, capital isn't the place that it was when I was there. Nope, it's not. And that's okay, because here's how Jesus is showing up in all sorts of ways that you never thought were possible, in ways that I didn't think was possible when I was growing up. And that's the, the wonder of, of the work that I do with interfaith, multi-faith and non-faith students, is that they're the ones who are showing me like, hey, you told me this thing about your God, like here's how it's actually showing up in my life and how my faith, my religion, my God, their God's are expressing that beauty and I like oh wow like they're that's different that's not my tradition but I have this kind of you know to borrow language from other people this holy envy of wow that's wonderful even if it's not mine that's great and I'm so glad that you have it so that's what I got to write about and I'm so glad that I got to be a, a part of it but um I, what I really want people to do is like come and hang out and be a part of interfaith community and see that like yes you can be a real Christian involved with real people that have real other faiths and it's all going to be okay like it's all going to be just fine it's so going to be fine or beautiful it's going to be amazing it's going right. to be <laughs> Yeah, but I feel like um, that interfaith relationship piece is something that is really easy to get hung up on, um, mm -hmm. especially if you are 
quoting other texts that talk about um, being unequally yoked or um, the, this this danger of of being influenced by somebody who's going who's who's essentially the the metaphor of sticking a toe in the bathwater and all of a sudden you're submerged kind of a thing, um, and that is that is a fear based logic and it's 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 a terrifying way to pursue your faith. I read something today that was like, if, uh, if the only reason why you are a Christian is that you're scared not to be, then you're not a Christian, you know? And I just like, it's like, well, duh. Um, but that's also one of the reasons why, you know, in the book, so much content on purity culture and sex and sexuality. Um, and it's not to uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater, like Laura, you're saying. Um, I know that Paul is a very hard disciple to read as an LGBTQ person. But um, I love that you're able to look at Paul and figure out, well, these are the parts that actually connect with me and that makes sense. And I love about this writer. Um, and I'm going to use that to help define uh, the parts that I don't like, you know. And I think that is a powerful and beautiful way of, of discovering scripture. And I think that the rest of the world um, needs to know that they can do that as well. You know, if it were up to me, uh, Paul wouldn't be part of the Bible. <laughs> Honestly, like I, I think that Paul is, um, I think that he's, a, he's an asexual man, an asexual cisgendered man, and that's fine. But you know what? Nobody wants me, a lesbian, to, to write about straight people relationships and call it law. Like, honestly, I, I really don't, I don't understand why straight people, why women are attracted to men and men are attracted to women. To me, it's a little icky. And <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I were a, a, one of the gospel writers, it would not be done. Um, but I'm, I mean, like, I'm, I'm just saying that I'm, I'm making a joke, but I, I'm really passionate about the way that you, you express that the sexual ethic of of loving people where they're where they're at. Why we need deconstruction? Why this is a really valuable <laughs> process? Because we're like, oh, this is a good normal, Mm-mm. but it shouldn't be. <laughs> oh no, I'm also looking at cishet relationships. I'm like, this looks like it's not working for anybody here. Like, well, let's try some. I kind, I think what the queer community has put together is better than what the cishet community has put together in terms of choosing family and negotiating relationships. Like, I think queer people should write all the sexual ethics and use cishet people. Get get invited to come learn from us if you want to. But So in a totally non-joking way, I, I think there's actual significant wisdom to that. I am cishet and I am married to a woman who is cishet and our relationship was so difficult for so long because of purity culture and ways that it affected both of us that, I mean, we talk with regularity about the hard work, the presence of God and the, the love of people that kept us together through, I mean, really the deconstruction of the relationship that we thought we were supposed to have and then figuring out how to be in love with one another and how to support and be care. And we're, we haven't figured that out perfectly. We're building it on the other side, but so much of that has been unlearning stuff. We've been taught by people who supposedly knew what was right. And then listening to people who do not uh, follow the sexual ethic of purity culture and instead teach us something beautiful and wonderful and holy about our bodies. That's just so needed. And, and again, I think one of the reasons we need the deconstructionist playbook is we need to realize that we've been sold a bill of goods that is not in fact good. And I think like, 
I was laughing and being playful, but I was actually serious too. And I think that that's not only cishet purity culture, but it's also whiteness, right? It's also deconstructing what we learned as white people, those of us who are white, and being like, well, we were taught about that isn't working. <laughs> like, um, or it's working for us at the expense of other people. And so ultimately that's not so great. And I think that in general, dominant cultures do need to learn from the cultures that we've marginalized, sexuality, gender, race, class, like all disability, all of the, all of these ways. Right. And I would say that, you know, just because, you know, you're bringing up whiteness and Christian supremacy, white supremacy is something that we cover in the book, but Drew, this idea that you have to be a purist when it comes to the kind of relationships that you foster with people inside your own faith is uh, an exercising of white supremacy. This um, idea that like anybody outside of the Christian bubble is a heathen or is a savage and therefore needs to be colonized. And so you get a lot of this talk that is just talking down to people because uh their faith is lesser than yours. Therefore their culture is lesser than yours and they need to be saved. This like savior complex, which we laughed about on our call the other night. But yeah, I, and that's all wrapped up in Christian supremacy. This idea that I am first because I know who God is and I have the holy word and I get to evangelize that to everybody else, um, which I feel like is just as, disruptive as purity culture. And yeah, they're just, they're both wrapped up in white supremacy, but we really need to learn ways to embrace the other. And yeah, we have whole sections in this book on community and otherness and, you know, figuring out, does God actually have pronouns? Mm. Um, and uh, what are some other ones? I don't know if y'all have a, a favorite section or something that you're really getting excited about but I think that the community one is definitely one for me I I will say the, the one I'm most excited about for my ministry is not the one I'm most excited about for me but because of the way that sexual ethics is still on a college campus so I mean everything from the different collisions of fraternity and sorority life to various kinds of of hookup culture to various kinds of purity culture and the way that all different kinds of senses of what a body is and what sexuality is and how they should or should not be interacted with. Like having a, I was going to say a good Christian view, which I don't mean in the, like a good Christian, but in having a good deep engagement with what is sexuality for me in a way that maybe considers what I was taught wasn't right, but, or wasn't right for me. But also that doesn't mean I have to abandon my faith in order to find something that is healthy for me. That's something that is really that I'm excited for because I know how desperately my campus needs it. College students everywhere need it. That that's something that is really like that's a gift to campus ministers everywhere that that you all this is totally, totally uh, a need on every college campus. That that's something that is going to be transformative for sure. And I've tried we've tried to do this in the app, which is just foster a sense of community, your ability to be able to read devotionals alongside other people and, and chat about them. But I just, I will die the, the moment I hear about a, a church group or a campus group actually reading this book together and highlighting and talking about some of these ideas, because um, I feel like this stuff 
needs to be digested in conversation. Um, it needs to be highlighted and, and discussed and um, to become part of the ether and the conversations that we're constantly having because um, it's, it's heavy stuff. It's good stuff. And, you know, I don't think that it should be hiding in the app anymore. Yeah, we're not. It's real, real hard to be Christians or spiritual people by ourselves. It's, I guess it's possible when it's under necessity, right? Or people have to leave communities that have been really bad for them or people are in situations where they're deeply isolated. But it is so hard. We need each other. Like humans beings need each other. And we need each other to understand things and we need each other to discuss with. Christianity shouldn't be this thing where your life is going this way and it just gets harder and harder and harder to um, plug into. You know, like I think what this book is showing, will show folks is that it's it's all combined. Like it's right here. It's right here. And the Christianity that is available to you is in sync with your life and how you're growing and the way that you're engaging with the world and your friends and community and work. There's this idea that like to be a Christian means that you have to be suffering, you know, Mm -hmm. means that the gospel is out of reach for so many folks who don't need to be suffering, right? Like they need to be healing, they need to be growing. Um, and so, yeah, this book is actually, it's gonna do a lot of that, like cutting away those, those, uh, those old thoughts and, and, and you know, um, helping you to reframe you know, faith and spirituality. So how are people gonna be able to get this book? Check out our Bible app. Um, we've already set up a page for Bemba Press, which is where uh, we will continue to publish titles like this. And I keep meaning to ask, what's the story of the name behind Bemba Press? My mom is, it's its just about like indigenous family, indigenous community, wanting this publishing world to reflect the people who actually consume this material. And so right now, a startlingly large amount of publishers are all white and cis. Um, and it's just, it's ridiculous. And so... Um, I wanted to get into this space so that I could continue to lift up marginalized voices or at least use my team of brown women to uh, to help determine what, what gets put into the world. And I came up with Bamba Press because my mother's native tribe in Zambia is, uh, is the Bemba people. And they have always been a matriarchal tribe. And, you know, some of the folklore is about them being kind of like Amazonian you know, warriors. And so I thought, you know what, our Bible app is led by mostly women. And I just want to keep that tradition going. Um, And so yeah, I just snatched that out of my family history and stuck stuck a label on there. I'm so grateful for both of you and for your perspectives and your leadership and for the way that the Holy Spirit shows up in our bodies in different ways and yet unites us into one strange and beautiful collective of people putting together this project and one that will be producing so many things in the future. So my deep hope is that everyone who's listening now or later will buy 7,000 copies of the Deconstructionist Playbook. If that's not realistic, maybe just one for yourself and one to get away, or 7,000 because I... I'm like touched to the point of almost not having words about the origins of the name of Emba Press and also having the sense that this is a legacy that deserves to live on. This is a legacy that the world needs. And remembering that, that how we buy 
and what things that we focus on, ways that we invest our time and our money and our reading attention, that that, that communicates values. Yeah. And this is something that deserves our value. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's like a super judgmental, like, oh, you didn't put your treasure in the right place. But I feel like it's also a promise. If you want your heart to go somewhere, put your treasure there. Mm, I'm just receiving all of your, your blessings. Like this just feels so good. These are my hopes and dreams. And it's good. It just feels so good to have them like echoed back at me. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasto. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers. <laughs>